Well, again, good morning. It's nice to be with you here today. Um, today, I get to address one of these topics that uh, usually comes out of the world of, of uh, <clears throat> more speculative thinking. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, my, my wife and I have differences in our view on, on speculative thinking. For, for, for Nancy, speculation is wasted time. For me, it's called philosophy, and it's just something you do. But, but here's, a, here's a question that comes up in our 13th week of this series on the New City Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism, how they parallel one another. And the question is, and this gets asked of me every once in a while, is it possible to so perfectly obey the law of God that salvation through Jesus Christ is not necessary? In other words, it, would it be possible to live a perfect life, therefore you don't need Jesus? That question comes up. I think it's a fair question to ask. I find it an interesting question um, because that would be quite an Olympic moral gold medal if somebody could keep the law perfectly. And would that make Jesus' death and resurrection irrelevant? Well, first of all, I don't really think so. I think Jesus still means the world. He brings all the meaning to the law. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a bit further and say to engage this question this morning, one of the things we have to ask is when the Apostle Paul or, or Jesus speak about the law, what is it they're addressing? I think sometimes we read scripture and we see things like the law and we just assume, oh yeah, I know what that is. But I actually wanted to stop and look back and say, all the times that I've thought what the law is, did I, did I have it right? So I did a, little, did a little study on the side. And to the best that I'm able to tell, and most scholars come down with, the law that's referred to in the scripture is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, thou shalt not kill, no other gods before me, don't covet, the, the Ten Commandments, plus all the other moral codes that are in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the first five books, or the, the second four books of the New Testament that way. Or, I'm sorry, did I say New Testament? Now you're really confused, aren't they? The, the, the second, third, and fourth book of the Old Testament and fifth book of the Old Testament. So here's what that law amounts to. Um, it's this great moral code it's a vision of perfection we'll talk about later. And one of the things about it is, could anybody really attain perfection? This is particularly true when you read the Ten Commandments through the lens of Jesus. Jesus had an interesting way of interpreting the law that didn't let anybody too far off the hook. In fact, nobody really got off the hook at all. Um, because Jesus would say things like this, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And you go, yep, I haven't done that. Well, I say unto you, if you've even looked at another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Oops, the heat goes up. In another place, Jesus said, you call a person, you say, thou shalt not kill, and you've kept that commandment, you haven't murdered anybody, but I say to you, if you even call somebody a fool and demean their character, you've killed them. So under Jesus' definition of the law, it looks to me pretty inescapable. All of a sudden, the, the moral slope toward perfection gets really, really steep. And that, that raises this 13th question, 
in the Heidelberg Catechism or in what we call what we're looking at, the New City Catechism, which Mark, you explained this already to everybody, didn't you? The New City Catechism is really an edited version of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's condensed. It's easier to read and understand, and it takes way less time, and it really does a very nice job of covering the same stuff. But we're really talking about the same thing. And here's question 13. Can anybody keep the law perfectly? Here's the answer. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Now I want to go to the scripture in Romans 3, that is the backbone of this question and answer in the catechism. And it goes like this, starting at 3.1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in the circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So first of all, if you've been given the law, you're blessed to have it to work with. Okay? What if some were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and let every human being be a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, more clearly, what shall we say? That that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on all of us? I'm using a human argument here, says Paul. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness so it increases his glory, uh, why am I still condemned as a sinner? That sounds like one of those real interesting arguments. Have you ever ever tried that when you were a kid with your parents where you did something wrong and you tried to spin it so you're really okay? This spin doesn't really work so well when you read it. You kind of laugh at the ridiculousness of it, uh, that that, uh, if falsehood enhances intensifies God's truth, then we ought to be all the more false and God's truth with big bears. Paul says, no, condemnation for that is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And then the depraved nature of human sinful nature really gets amplified in these last couple of verses. And I'm sorry it's so caustic, but it's, it's the word. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Sit in that for a second. Very, very sobering picture of human nature in its broken state that we see in Romans. A very sobering picture. I find it personally offensive, insulting, and really hard to take. But absolutely true. That's the part that really bugs me. I read stuff like that and it's so insulting because I so want to be good. I so want to be able to, don't you want to be able to muster up all you've got toward being good? Sure, God help me and everything, but I really, really want to be good. And, and the scripture basically says, our best efforts are a loser. Our worst efforts are real losers. The text displays the idea that we have little good alone in ourselves. We all have a serious kink in our hose when it comes to living up to even our own highest standards, let alone God's highest standards. See, I can't even pass the law as I said it for myself. 
I, I, are any of you others, are there other moral failures like me here that, that you know, I mean, I can't keep God's law. I, I need forgiveness all the time. I can't even keep my own law, right? I, I'm, I'm a hopeless case when it comes to that. Now, you may find this dismal and discouraging at first, but the way God's grace works, even the bad news gets flipped into good news. The huge frown of the reality of sin becomes the smile of grace that we all receive from God. Let me talk a little bit about the purpose of the law, because I think I see several that I'd like to talk about here. And while we can't perfectly keep the law, I think we can look at the beauty of the law, A, for reminding us that we need a savior, and B, for giving us something to shoot for in our world, in our lives. The first thing I'd like to say about the law is this, and I borrow this from Martin Luther. The law is a massive moral boulder that rolls down from the mountainside. You, ever, you, you hear about this, the, these rock slides on Mount Rainier every once in a while when people are hiking. I've talked to people, and this one, one friend of mine was hiking once, and there was a, a rock fall, and he got under a ledge, and this rock came over the top and hit and then tumbled down the mountain and stopped, and he said the rock was the size of a Volkswagen going over the top of them. I would like to say that maybe the law here is a, a boulder the size of a Mack truck that smashes us and crushes us to powder. And, and I know this sounds ironic, but the greatest gift the law gives us is to totally condemn us and make us desperate for a savior. 2017, this year, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It was on Halloween day of this year that Martin Luther tacked his 99 theses, complaints about the Roman church on the wall, and said some things have got to change here, folks, and I'm the new sheriff in town. And Martin Luther got this whole Reformation ball rolling by saying the law's greatest purpose is to crush us and make us see that we need a savior. In fact, in many Reformed churches, we haven't done that here traditionally, but in many um, the law, the Ten Commandments, are read at the very beginning of the service. Did any of you grow up in a church where, uh, in your childhood, the law was read in the, in the, in the church? Okay, you got it right. So you, somebody stands up, here's the good news, and they read the Ten Commandments to start the service. And you go, okay, let's proceed immediately to, you know exactly what the next part of the service is going to be. Oh, God, forgive me, you know, because we can't live up to the law. And literally, churches used to, and I'm not saying it'd be a bad idea. Maybe we should once in a while read the Ten Commandments and go, oopsie, we're here because we all need a Savior, right? And you listen to the commands, and there are sweeping implications, and you shudder, wondering, what do I have to do to be saved? And then as the service goes along, you realize that you're a perfect candidate for grace. The law opens up the world of possibility for grace and a new covenant. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is buried in a book that we don't often read as often as we maybe should, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. But Hebrews 8.8 has one of the most compelling scriptures I've ever read in my life, and it's one of my favorites. And it says this, but God found fault with them and said the days are coming while I'll establish a new covenant. God found fault with them and said, I will establish a new covenant. The implications of that, folks, is that your ticket to eternal life, your ticket to salvation, your ticket to a restored relationship 
with God, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, is offered to you at your admission of failure. That's the price of admission. I think that's kind of cool. The new covenant that God has created is an expression of his wild and crazy love for us, that while we are totally insufficient and couldn't live up to his law, where we vandalized his flourishing goodness in the world because of our sin. We've destroyed the planet we live on. Uh, an Italian scientist declared this week that in 80 years, the earth could be an uninhabitable. Kind of a scary thought. Um, we'll hope that's not true. But, but the, you know, even at the ecological level, we've caused a lot of damage. Just think about the implications of the verse, though. Your failure opens a door for the greatness of God. Our inability highlights his ability and turns it loose in us. Now, having said this, if God's law crushes you and you feel a little bad, you feel a little morally guilty when you read it, good. Use that time for self-reflection. First thing you do, don't condemn yourself. Condemn your sin and ask Jesus to be your savior. That's the starting point every time. Every time, back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to grace, back to grace, back to grace. But as we live into and out of grace, there's a second thing that comes up about the law. And that is the law becomes a blueprint for life as God imagined it. Isn't that kind of cool? The law is a blueprint for life as God imagines it. If you really study the law, and you see what sense it makes in building a good society and building good people, it's all of a sudden not a bit offensive. It actually becomes somewhat inspiring. Read the Ten Commandments. Thank God for his eternal perfection. And we really ought to pray for a world where these Ten Commandments are emblazoned on everyone's heart, right? Now, so the, 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 the law then becomes a blueprint for what a good world and a good, good society can look like. And I think that's really, really, really important. The other thing the law is, is a wonderful tutor in righteousness. And what I say with that is, I can take all those things in the law and flip them around. So instead of, thou shalt not kill, what's everything that I, Randy Rowland, within my capacity can do to promote life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, you got that one down. What can I do to promote the quality of the relationship that I do have that's intimate with my spouse? And, and how, do I, how do I fulfill that? And all of a sudden, not committing adultery becomes a very small thing and all of the possibilities become big. Thou shalt not lie is a wonderful invitation to practice bold integrity and transparency with our affairs. You see what I mean? So the, the law becomes a tutor for us in the new life in Christ that we want to live. But we don't pursue the law to get saved. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. And then he reignites in us an interest in seeing the law form and be lived out inside of us. Not in a static, legalistic, pound other people with how righteous you are sort of a way, but in a way that says, Jesus Christ is alive in me, and this is how I'm living out 
the second, third, fourth, or fifth commandment in this part of my life today. So, no, I don't think that we can ever be perfect and not need Jesus. I think the law does a wonderful job of condemning, inspiring, and training us in new life in Jesus Christ. But without the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection in operation at the core of our life, none of that means anything. And if you try to live a morally perfect life without Jesus, good luck. Here's what I'd say. Maybe you're really moral. Maybe you're a good swimmer. I, would, I like to use a swimming analogy. So I go down to Westport, and I go out to the shore at Ocean Shores. And I put on my swimming trunks, which when you see my white legs and everything, it's quite an aberration. Look, a beluga. Um, you know, and um, and you, uh, you start walking out in the water. And I'm a heck of a swimmer. You know, I had to do training for scuba diving. I swum all my life. And you know what? I'm morally better than you. Um, in our attempt to swim to Hawaii, I can make it way further than you before I drown. Not a really high practical moral claim, is it? There's an interesting reversal that takes place as we grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Our insecure self-tries at keeping the law fail, and we become discouraged, resentful, frustrated. We feel like failures. We get depressed and anxious. Then somewhere along the line, we believe the gospel, and we accept God's grace and we know that Jesus' grace and love for us is true, and we accept his salvation, and we ask him to form himself and his values inside of us. As we grow in grace, our heart changes, and we gratefully and cheerfully desire to live into the things that represent the law. In other words, they're not the law to us anymore. They're great elements of freedom. They're marks of Christian liberty lived in a perfect way. The law is always there in the background. It's always running to remind us how much we need grace. You know why? Because we're not very good on grace memory, are we? We're not good at remembering grace. But we're all really good at being tuned into what isn't working in our lives. So the law stands there as something that calls us to grace. So the thing I want to say to you is when you're feeling like a failure when you're struggling and you're feeling like things aren't working, that's an opportunity to experience grace at its greatest level and to appropriate it for yourself and live into it. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you as you're set free from the curse of the law, the curse of sin and death. Amen.